All right, everybody. We'll get started tonight. I don't know what's going on with the middle section. We're just almost scaring everybody away. I don't know what's happening. Anyway. All right, so tonight is going to be the last uh, question that we're going to address for the question and answer. We're going to have a conclusion message um, next week. And then uh, the two weeks after that, um, the one Wednesday, we're going to be away for our pastor's planning for the year that we do. Uh, and then the week after that, my daughter has an orchestra concert that I would hate to miss. So I'm going to be seeing that one on Wednesday. So you're going to get a double barrel Lalathan, a one-two. Uh, Andrew Lalathan's going to be speaking, and then Adam Lalathan's going to be speaking. And, um, and I thought, well, you know what, that's actually going to be a great opportunity because a lot of the folks know them through the junior high ministry, and they know them through the children's ministry with what's going on right now with Kids Club. But really, the adults have never heard from them. So what an opportunity for everyone to kind of hear from them directly in their heart, because both men just have such a huge heart for the Lord. So I'm looking forward to that. And then we are going to be starting our new series on the will of God for your life on the 24th of January. So it's hard to believe I'm already talking about the end of January, which is ridiculous. So if that's any foretelling of 2024, I'm sure it's going to be here and be gone before we know it. So we need to make sure that we use our time wisely. So I decided, let's go ahead and end with a doozy. How is Judas tied with the Antichrist? This one is a very interesting one. And I figure with our question and answers that we've done so far, and with talking about comparing Scripture with Scripture, uh, this is another really good one to take a look at. And, uh, and this will be, be a fun one to get into tonight. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is incredible. And we often take it for granted so much in our life. It's sometimes I, I forget the riches that I have uh, right in front of me every single day. And, and the fact that we live in a country where we can have multiple copies of these things in our possession. And uh, that we have the freedom to read it and to study it and to memorize it and to, to preach it and to teach it and to talk to others openly about it. Uh, what, a, what an age we live in. And... And yet there is such a famine in the land of people that really want to hear the Bible. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to do our job, to be good stewards of it, that as we uh, fulfill the calling that you have for us to be fruitful and to multiply, that we would be faithful to invest these things into future generations uh, so that way you may receive the glory that you deserve, the fruit that would abound unto your glory and, and eternity future, that we would be able to see all the things you've been able to do uh, because of um, just being a part of this work that you've entrusted to us and, and we get to work with you. So Father, I pray tonight as we get into this that this again would not be something that would be um, something that would puff up our minds, uh, but it would cause us to really stand in awe of your word as we take a look at the things that you have given us and that we would be trusted with it. So we love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that is our question for tonight, maybe. All right, you might need to, uh, the computer might need to get it focused on the, on the slide itself. All right, so we're still working through some of those things. Okay, so how is Judas tied with the Antichrist? Now, some of you will be like, what? I never knew they were tied together. Oh, yes, they are. They absolutely are. Some of you have heard this before, and it's going to be another time for you to kind of hear it and to go through some of these cross-references. And some of you know this very, very well. And so this is a very interesting topic. And so one thing I want to talk about before we get into the depths of this one is that the key to this question and understanding this question really comes with 
each word and each verse we're going to take a look at. And that we need to approach each word and each verse with a heart that believes every word of God is pure. And that every word is uniquely and specifically chosen by God in your Bible. That is a huge key. When you start to understand that the book that you have and that you can hold in your hands, that it is not any ordinary book and that the words, the exact words that you can see in your King James Bible are words that God specifically chose. It really opens up so many different things in your heart and mind. Uh, Because if you think about it this way, some people don't believe that's even possible, but if you think about it this way, and I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it over and over, that God and his word cannot be separated. God cannot be separated from his word. And so when you think about that, just that alone, if God is perfect and he is holy and he is pure, then his words must be holy, perfect, and pure. And if you were to take all the versions of the Bible and you line them up side by side by side by side, you'll be able to see that they all don't say the same things. And some people are like, well, you know, of course, because it's the translators. Oh, hold on. Hold on a second. No, this is very important. When you start to line up certain verses and they say things that are different and often opposite, then how do you know which one is actually true? And so this is a big, big deal. And so we believe in the King James Bible's God's preserved word in English. And as a result, as you compare verses and words with each other, and you see how God has used phrases and words in the Bible, God was not messing around. He picked these words, these phrases, to be in the places that he wanted them to be, to tell us truth that he wanted us to know. And that is big. I mean, we could have a whole series just on that. But this one, this answer to this question, really proves this out to be true. And it's very interesting. So we need to approach the Word of God from the perspective of that every word, every verse, that we believe that it is there on purpose and that God wants us to understand this. And it is the Word of God that reveals truth and error because it is a light that shines in a dark place. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We often memorize verse 12, and we should, because verse 12 is a very important verse. But I also like to take a look at verse 13 after it, because it really shows you how closely connected and how intimate God is with his word. So Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick, it is alive and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, think about this for a second. So the word of God is not only alive and powerful, but it's sharper than any two-edged sword, but it means literally sharper because when you look at the next things that it qualifies and it explains, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. So it can get down into the the spiritual aspects of each and every person and of the joints and marrow physically. So where in the Bible do you see the word of God as a sharp two-edged sword actually cutting flesh? Revelation 19. When Jesus Christ comes back, it says, Out of his mouth proceeded out a sharp two-edged sword that with it he cuts down his enemies. And so his word has power to not only divide the soul and the spirit, the spiritual realm, but also the physical realm, the joints and the marrow, and the emotional realm, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of God truly contains everything that we need for life. Everything. 
Spiritual, physical, emotional, all of it. It's all encompassed right here. And then look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. That is God. That is Jesus Christ. That is the person of the word of God. So neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the written word of God, verse 12, and the person called the word of God, they are one and the same. They are, the, they are one and the same. And that's why I say oftentimes, and this helps me, that the way you treat the Bible is the way you're treating Jesus Christ. Because they are one in the same. You cannot separate God from his word. And I think that's an important point to bring out because as we compare scripture with scripture, the challenge tonight for many people that don't believe this or have never thought about this um, or just really struggle with this is that do you believe the words of God? Because if you believe the words of God, you will believe what it says over how you feel. And that is a Bible believer. That's what it means to be a Bible believer. That you believe what God says over what you think, over what you feel, over what you've ever been taught. And this is also why we need to take everything that we have been taught and we need to align it with the scriptures. And if what you believe or what you have been taught does not line up with what the Bible says, then it is your doctrine, your belief that needs to change. And the Bible needs to reign supreme. And that is what it means to be a Bible believer. So that's the challenge for tonight as we get into this. Because some of these things, for some folks especially just common, ordinary Christians that have never heard this before, this could be hard for them to hear. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there. Okay, with that said, let's go on. All right, so our first point talking about how is Judas tied with the Antichrist. So the very first thing that we see in Scripture when you study this out is this phrase, the son of perdition. The son of perdition. It is a title given only to Judas and the Antichrist. So when you see the son of perdition and you search it up in the Scriptures, you will find that it is only referring to Judas and the Antichrist. It's only used specifically, that phrase specifically, is only used twice in your Bible. And the first one is used in John 17, 12, where Jesus is praying to God the Father. And he says, While I was with them in the world, talking about the disciples, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's very clearly talking about Judas. He's not talking about the Antichrist here at all. He's talking about Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And that's also when it comes to the scripture might be fulfilled. That goes back to Psalm 109, which we're going to talk about that a little bit later, about him having this role, this office, and then someone else taking his place, which Peter talked about in Acts chapter 1 when Matthias was chosen to take that place. So that's the first place. It's Judas is mentioned as the son of perdition. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, that is the Antichrist, who is given the title now, the son of perdition. So the son of perdition is used for only two people, Judas and the Antichrist. And it doesn't say a son of perdition, it says the son of perdition. That's important to understand. So just based on those two scriptures alone, right away we know there is a very close connection between Judas and the Antichrist. That the Bible refers to both men as the son of perdition. So that should perk your ears immediately. Immediately. Now, let's have a little bit more fun and go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6. We've mentioned John chapter 6 over the course of the last few weeks. And so what's going on here is you have many of the disciples, uh, Jesus' disciples, they are, they are with him, and he confronts them. And he confronts many of them by saying, hey, listen, you're not here because you actually want me. You're here because you want your bellies to be full. That's really what you want. And so then he throws this whole thing out there about, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, then you have no part with me which, of course, the Roman Catholics take and they rest that, twist it, and they make it the doctrine of transubstantiation, the fact that when the priest stands behind and they chant their things that they chant with their cup and with their wafer, that it turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so that's where they get that false doctrine from, because Jesus makes that very clear in here in verse 63 of John 6, that the things that he's speaking of, he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So he's speaking on a spiritual level and they didn't quite understand it. So Roman Catholics only take what they want and they leave out verse 63 that shows very clearly that he's not talking about literally eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Only an insane person would believe that because the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly, clearly forbid cannibalism, clearly. And so why would Jesus even mean that? Because he's speaking spiritually. But he says things that are very hard because it tests what they actually believe. And God does this with, with people. He brings them to a point where there's something that they hear they don't like. And so what are they going to do? Are they going to abandon what they think and what they feel and what they've been taught in order to adopt God's ways? Or are they going to just leave? Because that's generally what happens. So Jesus is doing this to really divide those that have the right motives from those that don't. And here, what happens is, as a result, is verse 66, which is such a coincidence, I'm sure, John 6, verse 66. I'm sure that's just such a, such a strange, strange coincidence. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? And then Simon Peter answered, and he answered, oh, so wisely, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we don't know if Peter also struggled with the things that Jesus said. He may have, because that wouldn't have been easy for them to hear. But Peter knows this. Like, he, may, he might have struggled with, yeah, that was, that was really that was hard to hear. <laughs> but we do know one thing, that you are Christ, and we know that, and we're sure, and where else are we going to go? So it shows you Peter's heart attitude, which is incredible. And what a, what a pattern, what a model to follow after. But now Jesus says something very interesting in verse 70. Jesus answered them, the disciples, because Peter is speaking for, on behalf of all the disciples together. Have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Now that phrase... That should stand out to you. Like when you're reading the scriptures and you come across that, it says, one of you hath a devil? No. Is a devil. Is a devil. And then he explains who that is. At least the scriptures reveal it in verse 71. He spake of Judas. So if you are curious about who that is, it's very clear. The word of God makes things so clear. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Now, when Jesus says, I've chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil, 
are we just going to spiritualize that and just explain it away and just say, well, I mean, of course, he's going to betray him, and so he, you know, he has a devil in him or whatever, or he's influenced by devils or whatever you want to call it. Or are we going to believe the scriptures when it says, one of you is a devil? That is a huge statement. That has never been spoken of about any other person in the Bible. No one in the Bible has said, that person, they are a devil. Like, that's never happened. They can, be, they can have a devil. They have a devil, sure. Or Legion can possess, like many devils can possess one person. But to outright call one person and say, one of you is a devil, that is very different. Very, very different. But that's what the scriptures say. And we know clearly from verse 71 that it is Judas Iscariot. Now, this leads me to my next point here. How is this possible? How is it possible for someone to be a devil? Because we know that humans can be possessed by devils. You can see that throughout the Gospels. But this person actually being a devil, what does that actually mean? So now this gets into a little bit more detail. So turn over to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to go there after this next reference that I want to show you. But go over to Genesis chapter 6. The infamous Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And this goes back a little bit to what we talked about several months ago about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and the battle that's been raging throughout human history about who is going to sit on those thrones of those two kingdoms. The, the, the kingdom of heaven being the literal physical kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God being that invisible spiritual kingdom uh, for each and every person. And so when it comes to these verses, I want to take a look at this. It all goes back to Genesis 3.15. So with the fall of man, with Adam and Eve, you have now God laying out the consequences of all their decisions. So he brings out Adam, he brings out Eve, and he brings out the serpent or the devil or Satan, and he is there with them. And one of the pronouncements that he gives to the devils, he says, and I will put enmity or division between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou, which is thy seed, shalt bruise his heel. Now, let me ask you a question and just think about this for a second. We know that the seed of the woman led to our Savior, Jesus Christ, correct? Okay. Now, was he literal? Was he physical? Yes. So thy seed and her seed, those are equated to be very, very similar and not one and the same, but very, very similar. So if her seed resulted in a physical person, why is it so much harder of a stretch to see that the seed of the devil, thy seed, would also be manifested as a physical person? Most people don't even want to go there in their minds, but this is what we're talking about in believing the Bible. Thy seed and her seed. Her seed resulted in the physical manifestation of God in the flesh. So why is it so much of a stretch for thy seed to result in the physical manifestation of the devil incarnate? If we're going to believe one, why are we not going to believe the other? And there's a lot of people that have a hard time with that, but that's really what the Bible says. So if God has a physical seed, the devil also has a physical seed. If God has a spiritual seed, the devil's also kind of a spiritual seed. Because the devil wants what God already has. And he wants that physical kingdom, and he wants that spiritual kingdom. 
And so he's going to have a counterfeit spiritual and physical kingdom. And so now we see this battle has been raging for all along. So how is this even possible? Well, we spent some time talking about this out of Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, we see that the devil and the fallen sons of God actually attack the physical lineage of the human race in order to corrupt everything that's going on. In Genesis 6, it says, And it came to pass, verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives all of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And you can study who these men became with men like Og, king of Bashan. And you, and you talk about David fighting Goliath and the other sons that Goliath had in and, and, and their lineage, the, the, the sons of Anak and all those guys in the Old Testament. These giants were abominations. They were not completely human. They weren't. And there's been scientific discoveries of, of skeletal remains found of these things that people have been trying to hide. And it's just, it gets insane when you start looking into it. But they actually did exist, for sure. And so you have these abominations that existed when the sons of God, these heavenly creatures, they, they came down and they had intimate relations with the daughters of men and created this hybrid abomination that was just, it was, it was terrible, absolutely terrible. And it led to the point where the whole DNA of mankind was totally corrupt that God brought the flood in, that's the context of Genesis chapter 6, and wiped everything out. And the only person whose DNA was not messed up was Noah. And you can see this in verse 9. It says, and these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. He was just, he lived rightly. He was perfect in his generations. His genealogical record was still intact to be human. And Noah walked with God. He had a spiritual relationship with the Lord. And so those three things is what made him find grace in the eyes of the Lord, and that's what spared him and his family to go into the ark. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that in weeks past. But this is, how is this possible? Well, of course, you have a physical manifestation of something that's not completely human. And these giants, there's no doubt in my mind that these giants were possessed by devils back in those days. And they, that was the, the, the bodily, I guess you can say, container that they had that they were able to possess and live in, for sure. Because these giants were not human. They were not human whatsoever. So that's very important. So how is this possible that Judas is a devil? Well, that's one reason right there, because you see it right there in Genesis chapter 6. So if this is the case, take a look at this verse. This is another interesting one. In uh, Psalm 109, verse 14. Psalm 109 is a very interesting chapter in your Bible. When you take a look at its context, you see that in Psalm 109, there are specific things that are spoken of about Judas. And there's direct cross-reference from Psalm 109 to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, when Peter is fulfilling the vacancy of his office with Matthias, he references Psalm 109. And in the middle of Psalm 109, talking about Judas, it says very clearly this very interesting verse. It says, Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. This is a very interesting verse. There's something that happened with Judas and his lineage, that God says very clearly, the iniquity of his fathers, Lord, remember it. 
Remember that. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. There is something that Judas's mother did that was so bad that God, that God clearly recorded in Psalm 109. Let that sin not be blotted out. What in the world could she have done that would have been so heinous? Well, go back to Genesis 6. What do you see? You see the sons of God coming into the daughters of men, and they procreate abominations. Is that it? It's possible. It's totally possible. I mean, how else do you explain that? If Judas is a devil, he's not possessed by a devil, and God says, Jesus says, the word of God says that he is a devil. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? I firmly believe that Judas was not completely human. He was not, he was not possessed by a devil. Jesus says he is a devil. He is a devil. And notice what else Jesus says about Judas in Mark 14, 21. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. Genesis 3, 15, by the way. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Why would God say something like that? Because we know how God feels about human life, don't we? Isn't every life precious to the Lord? So why would God say this about Judas? Because he wasn't completely human. It would have been good for him to have never been born. That's a very strong statement. Very, very strong statement. So when you compare Scripture to Scripture and you find out one of you is a devil, and that the, the devil himself is going to have a physical seed, and Jesus calls Judas a devil, and then Jesus says it would have been better for that man to have never been born. There's something very, very sinister happening with Judas. Now, take all those things in their context, and now let's keep tacking on to it. And let's go to the next point. Because now you're going to start to see some eerily similar commonalities between Judas and the Antichrist. Judas and the Antichrist is a false leader performing signs and wonders. So both Judas and the Antichrist, they are false leaders and they both perform signs and wonders. Now this one's an interesting one. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 4 and verse 8. So Jesus in his ministry right now, he had just gone around and he's preaching and he's teaching. And then he sends his disciples out two by two and they go and they preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he tells them, and by the way, I threw in verse 4 because it shows you that Judas was among them that he sent out, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. And in verse 8, Jesus tells them, as you go, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. So this tells you that Judas had the ability to do signs and wonders when he went out preaching the word of God. So it shows you that he actually did that. He had that ability. Interestingly enough, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, go ahead and turn there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to hit this passage a little bit later, so go ahead and turn there, and then we're going to hit it again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And in verse 9, it says, Even him, talking about the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. 
So when the Antichrist shows up, he is going to be coming with power, and he's going to have the ability to work signs and wonders, but notice God says that they are lying wonders. So they both, Judas and the Antichrist, are both false leaders, and they both have this ability to perform signs and wonders. I'm sure that's just a coincidence, I'm sure. But yeah, they're, they're definitely connected. Here's the next point to kind of tack on to it. Satan entered into Judas, and Satan entered into the Antichrist. Now, this one's very interesting as well. Because think about it, from a doctrinal perspective. What is Satan? When you go back and you study Satan and what the Bible says about Satan, what type of creature is he? He is a cherub. Now, cherubs have bodies, for sure. They're not like devils. Devils are disembodied spirits. They need a vessel to actually be in. But a cherub has its own body, just like an angel has its own body. And so when it comes to the devil himself, he is a cherub and he has his own body. So how in the world can he enter into Judas? Now, we see that he actually did, because in John chapter 13, verse 27, at the Last Supper, it says, And after the sop, entered, after the sop Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, Judas, that thou doest do quickly. So we know that Satan entered into Judas. So how is that possible? This is an interesting one as you kind of study this back and forth. In Matthew 13, you have the parable of the soils. And in one of the soils, it says, And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Now, at that point, they didn't really understand what that meant. The disciples were like, hey, what does all this mean? So when Jesus is explaining this parable, and he's talking about these that fell by the wayside, he explains what these things are. And he says, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which is sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. So, if we go back and look at it again, we have some definitions here a little bit. He sowed some seeds, fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And so the fowls are equated to the wicked one. Well, who is the wicked one? Well, that's Satan. That's the devil. So we know that fowls and the wicked one are very closely connected. Now, there's another key cross-reference that we need to take a look at based on those two pieces of information. Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, the unclean and hateful birds, when you go back into the Old Testament, it is always referred to as the fowls of the air. And the unclean birds, there were certain birds that were unclean. When you go back and you see like Noah, Noah's a great example of this. At the end of the flood, he sends out two birds. Remember what they are? One is a dove, the other one's a raven. And when he sends out the raven, that is the unclean animal. What makes it unclean? Well, what do ravens eat? Flesh, dead flesh. They feast on dead flesh. Doves don't. And it's a beautiful picture that the dove is just like the spirit of God. And the raven is like the spirit of Satan or devils. And so when you see the fowls in Matthew 13, the wicked one, and then you see this habitation of devils and every unclean and hateful bird, it shows you that these unclean birds are a picture that God wants us to understand of devils. That's what they are. 
And so when you see here in this, thing, this comparison, and you go back to Satan entering into Judas, and remember, what did Jesus call Judas? That he is a, he is a devil. He is a devil. So this goes into the Trinity and the counterfeit Trinity because Satan can't do the things that God does. You know, when it comes to the comparisons, they just don't quite fit. You have God the Father, and you have Satan. You have God the Son. You have the Antichrist. And you have God the Spirit, and you have the false prophet. And those three, the Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet, they're not the same. They want to function as if they're the same, but they're not the same. But all three on God's side, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, they all three are God. They are equally God, have different roles and different aspects that they want to accomplish within the will of God. But on, on Satan's side, it doesn't quite work exactly the same way. And so you have Satan... And then you have a devil that he has specifically chosen to be the Antichrist. And then you have another, a devil, that he has chosen to be the false prophet. And the only way that he can control those two is if they are in proper vessels that then he can control. And so Judas being a devil, when it says Satan entered into him, that is nothing more than the devil inside of Judas being submissive to the will of Satan. That's all that it is. He entered into him because now he's going to accomplish what Satan wants to accomplish. So I hope this is all making sense. This is getting pretty deep. But I tell you, we're ending with a doozy. <laughs> so when it comes to all these things being put together, and we put all these things together, we're going to be back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. Now, talking about this mystery of iniquity and talking about the Antichrist who's going to be revealed one day, it says in verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed. That is talking about the Antichrist and specifically the devil, specifically, that is going to be in a particular vessel revealed to the whole world. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now turn with me over to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of these chapters have been like chapter 13, chapter 6. It's been really weird. Chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Now there's something that's going to occur halfway through the tribulation period where this devil is going to take up residence inside of the body of the Antichrist. Revelation 13. And let's start off in verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. The beast is in reference to the Antichrist. Having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, that is Satan, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So what happens halfway through the tribulation period is that you have the Antichrist. There's an assassination attempt on the Antichrist. He rules the entire world, and something's going to occur. We don't know exactly what's going to bring this about. But there is a wound, and it is wounded to death. So he is killed, 
And then it says his deadly wound was healed. And the healing of this particular wound causes the whole world to wonder after the beast. So much so that it says in verse 4, And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And then he continues. And so this whole event is going to be so big, he's going to be assassinated. There's going to be a death and a resurrection of the Antichrist. And the result of his miraculous resurrection is going to cause the whole world to wonder after him. So much so to the point where they are going to be like, who is like him? Who is like him and who is able to make war with him? If you can't even kill him, who's going to be able to make war with him? And the whole world is going to be united with, at his back. And it says in verse 12 of the same chapter, it's talking about the false prophet here. And he, the false prophet, exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth, all, causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he, the false prophet, doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had a wound by a sword. So there we have the weapon that was used in the assassination attempt and did live. So he died and yet he is now alive. And interestingly enough, this is all connected, verse 15, and he had a power to give life into the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then it continues. So notice there's a wound, a deadly wound that kills him. He's now made alive. And the wound is now by a sword. So interesting when it comes to this, I'm going to show you this verse. I'm going to skip, skip forward just a little bit. There's a cross-reference on this one, Zechariah 11, verse 17. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So the mark in the right eye and in the right hand goes directly in worship to the Antichrist who had a deadly wound by a sword that took out his right eye and caused his right arm to be utterly just is dead. It's totally just dead. So there's a, there's a deep connection between the Antichrist's assassination attempt on the right eye, right hand, and then having everyone in the whole world receive a mark in the right eye or the right hand. That is not a coincidence because they're following the worship of the Antichrist as the false Christ. And that's why they place those things in one of those two places to identify with the Antichrist. There's more to be said there, but that's just briefly. That's just a brief connection when it comes to that one. The other thing I wanted to show you is where's the source of this spirit, this devil of the Antichrist? Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast, the Antichrist, that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. Again, perdition, only in reference to the Antichrist. And they that on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the, in the book of life from the foundation of the world, 
when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. What is this was and is not and yet is? It's a great question you might ask. We're going to get to that. But we know where he is. He is in the bottomless pit, and at the assassination attempt, he comes up out of the bottomless pit and possesses that body. Now, let's talk about the next verse, which shows you the same thing. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Talking about the two witnesses in Revelation 11. So that's very interesting. So take that information and kind of hold it over here, and then let's keep moving. All right. So here's our next point. Judas, the Antichrist, gathered troops to come against Jesus. They gathered troops to come against Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go into this in great detail because I want to make sure to finish all of these cross-references that I have. But in John chapter 18, when Judas comes and he tells Jesus, and he basically kisses him on the cheek, who does he come with? He comes with a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they've got lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus knows this is coming, and he sees them, and it says very clearly, it says, he says, when Jesus said, whom seek thee, he says, I am he. So they're like, oh, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And it's very interesting. When he uses that phrase, I am he, do you know what they did? All of them fell immediately backwards. All of them. And as they fell down backwards, they all knew who they were dealing with. And again, he asked the question, whom seek ye? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I'm sure that the second time was a lot more humble and a lot more submissive because they knew the power of who they were coming to arrest. But interestingly enough, a very similar thing takes place in Revelation 19.19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. The same thing takes place on a larger scale. Now it's not Judas anymore, or is it? And then you have the Antichrist coming against the Lord at his second coming. And it's the same thing that occurs. So Judas, the Antichrist, they gather troops to come against Jesus, to come against the Lord. And then lastly, Judas, the Antichrist, has his own place. This one's another really interesting one. So we've been kind of identifying several things. Now we're going to start to bring them all together into our conclusion. Acts chapter 1. So when Peter's talking about Judas and they're replacing him in his office, he says something very interesting about Judas. He says that he may take part of this ministry, talking about the person that's going to replace Judas' spot, and apostleship, from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. That is a very interesting phrase. Because remember, he is a devil. He is a devil. And so... When he, by transgression, fell, when he died, he went to his own place. That's not said about anybody else. That's said about Judas. In verse 18 of that same chapter, it talks about Judas. It says, now this man, Judas, purchased the field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Now that's how he died. We find out that he went to go hang himself, but in attempting to hang himself, it didn't work, and he fell headlong, likely off a cliff, and he burst asunder in the midst, likely off of the rocks, and his bowels gushed out. So his death was not pretty. But after he died, he went to his own place. Now turn with me over to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. 
Matthew 27 and verse 1. We'll see verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See out of that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Now, what's interesting about this is that Judas, if you go back just a couple chapters, you find out that he covenanted with the high priest and these religious leaders in order to betray Jesus. So he made a covenant. He made a covenant with them. They made a covenant with him. But Acts 1 says that Judas bought the field. Yeah, Judas did buy the field. But here it says that they bought the field. Yeah, they bought the field. Which one's right? Yes, they both did. Think about it. It's a covenant. It's an agreement. They were in on it. He was in on it. There's the price. So who bought the field? Yes. They all bought the field. And so there is a chunk of land that actually belongs to Judas in Israel today. So just a side note. You can think about that. So now you have this guy who says, well, because some people say, well, maybe he wasn't a devil. He was just possessed by a devil. Because here, clearly, he, he, he's, he's repenting of what he did. Did he, though? Because look how it's worded in verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned. Does that sound like godly sorrow? No. When he saw that things were not going in his favor, when things were not going according to his plan, he repented himself. He didn't repent from what he did. He repented himself. He regretted what he did. And he brought again the 30 pieces of silver, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed innocent blood. That is a true statement. But you know who else said, I have sinned in the Old Testament? Pharaoh. I have sinned, and yet, mm -mm, he didn't actually submit to God. He wasn't repentant towards God whatsoever. He acknowledged the sin, but then he moved right along, and he went back and did other things that were even worse. It's the same with Judas. And so he went and he hanged himself. I wonder why he hanged himself. Because after he hanged himself, and it didn't quite work, and he fell headlong, and he burst in sunder, it says in, in Acts chapter 1, that after he died, that he went to his own place. He went to his own place. Because round one was done, and now he's preparing with the devil to bring in round two. Because notice this in Revelation 9, verse 11. Talking about the bottomless pit. And they had a king over them, these creatures that were in the bottomless pit, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. So there is this king over the bottomless pit, and we already read these two verses. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And in 17, verse 8, this beast which thou sawest was Judas and is not, he's dead, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit shall go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was Judas and is not, because he's dead, 
and yet is because he's now resurrected from out of the bottomless pit. So, to freak you out a little bit more, let's put it all in one conclusion. Judas and the Antichrist are the same person. And that's quotes there. And this is going to take some time. You might have to chew on this for a little bit. But Judas and the Antichrist are the same person. After the assassination of the Antichrist, there is a false resurrection performed where the same devil that took up residence in Judas now possesses the dead body of the Antichrist. This event is what causes the whole world to wonder after the beast and worship him saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so to answer the question, how is Judas tied with the Antichrist? Because they are one in the same. Now, there's a lot here. I gave you a ton of cross-references, so you can take a look at these things and study them over and over and over. I went through these things in great detail even this past week. But this definitely explains why Jesus said very clearly, very clearly in John chapter 6, Now, I have chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. And it is not beyond the realm of possibility, because God has a seed, and the devil has a seed. God's seed ended up resulting in the physical person of Jesus Christ. The devil's seed also ends up being the result of the physical person called the Antichrist. And the Bible, as you compare Scripture to Scripture, makes everything about this very, very clear. But we have to do our part to study to show ourselves approved unto God. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for these things. Again, we don't want to know these things to make us high-minded or or just to know neat little details, but these are things that you've tucked away in your word for people that are willing to believe what you've actually said. And when we believe your word, it changes everything. And we get to know why you did what you did and the, the words that you specifically chose to put in your book. And we get to know more of your heart, more of your mind. And it helps us to see things when this world is going crazy and they can't know their left from their right or up from down we can see things very, very clearly and we can know exactly what's going on because you've given us an incredible book. So Father, we love you. We thank you. I pray we would not take it for granted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.